Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today in the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Eight Perfect Murders by Peter Swanson. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I'm not confident I could commit even one perfect murder. Across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library. And in the spirit of this book, I would just like to say that it was Marty Kinship, everyone. Marty Kingship is the murderer. <laughs> uh, my name is Trevor, and I'm the uh, branch at the Louis Rail Library. And there were so many red herrings in this book, I wasn't sure if I was reading a murder mystery or a Swedish cookbook. <laughs> without you. Have you been using our lists of books to somehow guide your actions? We'd love to hear about it. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around until the end of the episode to enjoy our most self-indulgent segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Before we dive into the book, let's check in with the panel. Do we want to discuss the results of the poll? So can we reveal now? I think so. The uh, the not only the winner of the genre, but the actual title of the book that we'll be reading eventually. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'm still reeling from the fact that you just went all in and you, you told who the murderer was. <laughs> well, one of my bones about this book is all the spoilers. So. Mm. Fair enough. Mm. Fair enough. Bones, gripes, bones. <laughs> the bones just, to pick. Did I just? Okay, yeah. I thought yeah. I just made up that, that expression. <laughs> Anyway, the poll came down to historical, historical romance. romance and armchair travel. And it was very close. In the very end, armchair travel went out. And after an email thread where Toby pointed out that all of the books were by white dudes, we selected a book by a white dude, Bill Bryson, in a sunburdened country where he talks about traveling around Australia. So if you're interested in that, you can read it now or uh, we will be... Reading it in a few months, I think. Right. And I'll make sure I update our upcoming books on the website so that it appears there. And for those listeners who enjoy reading ahead. Sounds good. So let's have Toby tell us about the author of this book. And after that, Trevor will give us a summary of the book. All right. Speaking of white guys, Peter Swanson, there's not a lot of information out there about him. I get the impression that this is purposeful. So very few sort of personal details in this bio, more about his writing process and what he's actually written. But that's that's just what you get. So he was born May 26th, 1968. Is that today? Oh, it's tomorrow. So happy early birthday, Peter Swanson. He's a graduate of Trinity College, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and Emerson College. It took him about 10 years of novel writing before he sold his first book. He had written a novella, The Girl with a Clock for a Heart, which had been published in an online magazine. And it got the attention of an agent who asked that he expand it into a novel. And then it was published as a novel in 2014. He's written about a novel a year since then. The Kind Worth Killing was published in 2015 and won the New England Society Book Award and was a finalist for the CWA Ian Fleming Steel Dagger. 
Her Every Fear was published in 2017. That was an NPR book of the year. All the Beautiful Lies in 2018, Before She Knew Him in 2019, Eight Perfect Murders in 2020. That was a New York Times bestseller. Every Vow You Break in 2021 and Nine Lives was published this year. He's won the New England Society Book Award. His books have been translated into over 30 languages, and his stories, poetry, and features have appeared in Asimov Science Fiction, The Atlantic Monthly, and The Guardian, among others. He says it takes him about nine months to write a first draft of a novel. He aims to write 500 to 1,000 words a day, comes up with a premise, and has an idea of the ending, and then just starts writing without plotting it out. Of this, he says, what that means is that I usually have a very bad moment about halfway through writing a book when I've painted myself into some unpleasant corner, but I think inspiration can strike during those bad moments. It forces you to think creatively. Swanson does often talk about his favorite novels and in interviews. They do change, but often include Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Uh, and then There Were None by Agatha Christie, A Kiss Before Dying by Ira Levin, A Simple Plan by Scott Smith, Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, and You and Hidden Bodies by Carolyn Kepneys. He lives on the North Shore of Massachusetts with his wife and cat, and about the only thing I could find about his personal life is that he enjoys swimming in the ocean and tries to do it year-round. That sounds exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, especially like Massachusetts. When does he have time to write? He's just swimming your rat. Maybe he dictates it. Yeah. Waterproof typewriter. <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting dangerously close to the uh, podcast that beat us, uh, the podcast of <laughs> Ocean Sounds. Okay, so here is the summary of this month's book, Eight Perfect Murders. Years ago, bookseller and mystery fan Malcolm Kershaw compiled a list of the genre's most unsolvable murders, those that are almost impossible to crack which he titled Eight Perfect Murders and published on his bookstore's blog. Years later, on a snowy day in February, an FBI agent contacts Mel's Boston bookstore. She has questions for him because there have recently been a series of unsolved murders that bear a striking resemblance to the murders on Mel's blog post. And the FBI isn't the only one interested in this introverted bookseller who spends most of his free time reading. The killer is out there, watching his every move a diabolical threat who knows way too much about Mal's personal history, especially the secrets he's never told anyone, even to his recently deceased wife. So to protect himself, Mal begins looking into possible suspects, and he sees a killer in everyone around him. And suddenly, a series of shocking twists leave more victims dead, and the noose around Mal's neck grows so tight he might never escape. That's a good spoiler-free summary. Well, <laughs> I had to balance out uh, Toby's taking over immediate of spoiler right at the top. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just I'm just dishing it out as yeah. he does so. Yeah, exactly. All throughout this entire give, book, give him a taste of his own medicine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, although again, one of the twists is the narrator is also a murderer. There's another spoiler. <laughs> Yes, this is going to be full of spoilers. By the way, spoiler alert, if you're listening and you haven't read the book yet, you now know a fair bit about it. So how did you guys find it? Well, this was my second read through because it, this was recommended to me. It's one of the side benefits or silver linings of the pandemic when that when some of our branches were closed, staff were working together that they wouldn't normally work together. And so I was working with the then assistant branch head at Windsor Park, Tannis Coleman, and she recommended this book because she and I would always be talking mysteries and stuff. So I read it and I thought it was you know fun. So reading it this time, 
I felt like I was playing a video game for uh, a level I've already beaten because I, I sort of knew who the, the bad guy was and I kind of knew some of the big twists. But at the same time, I was able to focus in on some of the, you know, the, the misdirection and things as well. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed it both times. I was pretty meh about it. And I'm not sure this isn't a genre that I read much and maybe that was part of it but there were parts of it that just really bugged me like the spoilers like the ending I thought the ending was disappointing I'm really really critical when I read books by white guys I like it just gets all my hackles up and I pay very close attention to the way women are written about and there's some things here that weren't great but it was readable, like it was compelling, it held my interest. Yeah, I guess not being a fan of the mystery genre, like one of the things that I enjoyed about the book is that it used a lot of the traditional elements of a lot of different mysteries. Like the narrator owns a bookstore, has a cat. It's a very like fantasy yeah, like kind an of, FBI yeah. agent just shows up and starts asking questions and getting him involved directly in a murder investigation. And he's like, sure. Like that happens to people every day. And they're like, yeah, sure. I'll just go along with this detective to a crime scene and investigate. <laughs> and I mean, they addressed it a little bit. Like, you know, the, the FBI agent was going against the grain, wasn't supposed to do that. And she suspected that there was a direct involvement, which is a little Columbo-ish, uh, you know, and... But the elements in the story are all like pulled from lots of traditional mysteries. So a lot of the stuff that doesn't really make sense in other genres, it's just kind of accepted in mysteries. Like you accept that person who runs a catering business will also solve murders because the local police force somehow is completely incapable of it. And, uh, and somehow it works out even though the murderer tries to get at them. <laughs> what I hated was how... This guy, this random person he finds on this online forum just happens to be in New England. <laughs> like, how convenient that, you know, these two people connecting on this vast underground internet message board would both be in the same area of the United States. Yes. Yeah, yeah that was a big coincidence. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the book goes even further because not only is it sort of referencing the plots and the twists of other uh, mysteries, but it spells it out. It, it lists eight books, other books that are real books. What did you guys think about that? Did it make you want to maybe read up on some of those other books? Or did you, like you're saying, Toby, the, the fact that some of the key points were spoiled in the course of the book made it like, well, now I don't need to read that. Or, 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 or does it, or not? I'm just wondering what you guys were thinking of that. Well, it's, like I said, it's not my genre. So it's, these aren't books I would brush out to read. I do have a quote about from Swanson about the spoilers in this book, because as I was researching him, this came up. And so I just want to read that. So he says, to be honest, I never thought of adding a specific spoiler warning to the book, but maybe I should have done just that. I think I'm one of those rare readers who is not particularly bothered by having plot points in books spoiled. I'm pretty sure I read Roger Ackroyd knowing the ending already, for example. Still, I know I'm in the minority. So... Yeah, I guess he doesn't mind having books spoiled. I I would mind. I... There was a study a while back about spoilers and how they affect people's enjoyment. The conclusion of the study was that spoilers tend not to change the enjoyment, in some cases actually enhance enjoyment of a movie or book, hmm. which is a counterintuitive 
uh, especially given how upset some people can be about spoilers, especially on online forums. Like when a movie's just come out and someone spoils the ending, people get very, very upset about it. But when they did it in a study setting, anyway, it didn't really negatively impact the enjoyment of the work to most people, which is interesting. And I, I found that to be true for myself. For many years, I was in the weird habit of watching movies out of sequence order. So I saw Beverly Hills Cop 2 before I saw Beverly Hills Cop, for example. And that spoiled certain elements of the first movie, but I enjoyed the first movie nonetheless. Hmm. For me, I think it depended on which book in the list we're talking about, because some of them I feel like they were totally spoiled. Like uh, the ABC murders, the whole conceit of that is talked about at length. And so I think if you were to read that, I'd be like, well, I, I already know what the whole thing is about but other ones it kind of just references the, a twist or something and i feel like you could still read it interestingly on the list did you notice that one of the books was by a.a a. milne mm -hmm. uh, who as far as i knew just you know did we the poo stuff but before, i guess before he did all that he took a crack at the one of the locked room mysteries where someone's murdered in a room it's, it was a weird, I, I, like I read a bit about the book, like the detective in it, he's not really a detective. He's just a guy that kind of wanders from place to place and he tries to live all these different lives and take other jobs just to see what they're like. And he decides to take on the job of an investigator for this. So, so it's, he's kind of a grifter? Yeah, yeah. A grifter <laughs> and a drifter. No, 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 no. <laughs> not, not a grifter so much as, like, because I read that one and uh, he's just at that time, a lot of stories took place with rather aristocratic or very well-off private individuals just doing things on a lark, right? Like the Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries, or like he was an aristocrat. He didn't need money, but he solved crimes. Hey. And this character was a lot like that, too. He was just a well-to-do individual who was going off to visit around, ran into a friend, happened to be there for a murder, thought, well, hey, why not solve it? <laughs> It's it's very much of its time and place, I think. A lot of like early Agatha Christie. It had a lot of tropes like that. But I find, too, some of the things, they, they weren't spoiled at all, really. Like I, I had read Strangers on a Train this past month to prepare for reading this book. And as far as they reference it in Eight Perfect Murders, it's, uh, you know, switching crimes. And that is in the story. That is like a, a central part of the story. But also, it's not really what the story is about in the end. It's just one of the th elements of it that catches people's imagination. But the story is really more about identity. And as he mentioned also in the book, it's about identity and pressure and um, what we do when we're coerced, I guess, how we view ourselves. There's a lot of psychological stuff in the book that isn't spoiled at all by what happens in Eight Perfect Murders. Reading about uh, Strangers on a Train, which I haven't read, but it made me think of that. It wasn't a very good movie, but from the 80s called Throw Mama from the Train. Yes. Uh, Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal. And uh, it's same... I take offense at saying it wasn't a very good movie. Oh, that you... movie was wonderful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just saw it like I was too young or I, 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 I it, you know, it, but it, it sort of takes the idea of Strangers on the Train, switching words, but then it goes off on its own kind of weird. It doesn't quite work out the way that. It's yeah. more of a comedy, I guess. Oh, it? it is. It's a black comedy, yeah, or dark comedy. Yeah, and it was played more for laughs than a lot of other dark comedies. But, I mean, Billy Crystal and Danny DeVito, you know, that's a good combo there. <laughs> you know, one of the questions that came out of this book is, you know, is there such a thing as a perfect murder? In Strangers on a Train, in theory, you switch murders and you don't have as much connecting you to it. Although in that one, it's spoiled because the first murderer keeps contacting the other guy anyway. <laughs> And clearly, these are not perfect murders because 
in all of these books, they're solved. Yes. That's a good point. But I guess that's a question. Like, uh, is there such a thing as a perfect murder? And they touch on it in the book a bit, but I suppose a murder that is never even seen as a murder. Like when <laughs> the, the, the one where they scare that lady who already has a heart condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only reason they knew it was a murder was because the, the guy left all kinds of props in the house, right? He left a, he left a mask on the wall. And was that the place that had all of the books mm-hmm. from the blog on the bookshelf and stuff? Like he was, yeah. you know, otherwise he probably would have got away with it. I remember reading something years ago, which was saying there are actually a lot of perfect murders and they're usually two people get into it in a bar and then outside in an alley later, one stabs the other, but there's no cameras or anything and there's no real evidence that can be used in the end and person dies. It's a generic, like, it's not a clever murder, but it's perfect in the sense that no one ever gets caught for it because there's just not enough to distinguish it and there's maybe not enough resources to investigate it properly and there you go, perfect murder. So are you saying, Des, that if your advice is if you're going to murder somebody, keep it simple? My advice is not to murder people. <laughs> I think there are a lot of downsides to it in general. I, I don't advise it. Seems like a lot of work. Especially if you're going into the whole disposing of the body thing. And uh, No, it's... There's always some way to get caught if you're trying to be clever. There was some some years ago, like when CSI was really popular, there was a guy who got caught committing a murder and he had done all of the things that he saw on the TV show, like making sure he didn't leave fingerprints. He had gloves on. He vacuumed up to make sure there was no hair or some other stuff. And then he forgot something really basic and simple. And I can't remember what it was, but he got nailed on that. Mm. You can be as smart as you want to be, but there's always some kind of mis adventure some sort of accident that can happen and uh the murder is discovered one way or another and sometimes people just they end up confessing it to somebody i mean in this book that's that's what happens too right the the guy who's committing all these murders he can't just let it be he has to let someone know yeah can we talk about that for a minute like his motive I found just very sad. Like his, it, he want he's killing these people because he's basically lonely and wants a friend. Like, is is that a comment on masculinity, on friendships between men? Like, what what's going on there? Well, that's it's interesting you say friendships between men because the narrator mentions that he has difficulty maintaining relationships because people feels like there's a barrier between them all the time. I think that's one of those things that's a trope from the mystery genre. Sometimes you have someone who commits murders in in a mystery and there isn't a really good reason for it. I kind of took it as that, like just that kind of a trope. Because otherwise, yeah, it is just this is a homicidal maniac. The murder, the first murderer in Strangers on a Train is like that too. He's just, he's bored, he's rich, he's... uh, he spends his time thinking of perfect murders because why not? You know, he's a, nar- a narcissist. But I, I think that's a trope that a lot of things fall back on too often in the genre. Yeah, it seems very lazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah when the mystery all came out, it didn't seem like much of a mystery at all. Like, there, I, I was expecting maybe a better twist or, or, or something that it just, it seemed to be kind of all wrapped up kind of very pat until he, then he had the very last chapter where it's where he's writing his last when it's uh malcolm's sort of last sort of take on everything it's almost like an epilogue where it was like you know it could end here but it's going to end here kind of thing one thing i liked about the way the book went was that like at the beginning it starts off okay 
bookshop owner has a cat, FBI agent starts investigating the crimes. And then he starts tossing in little things like, uh, oh, yeah, you know, like the murder of Roger Ackroyd, where the narrator is the murderer, bit of foreshadowing. Then there's a point where he, I forget exactly what he mentioned, but then he says, and now I'm going to confess something to you, uh, the reader, like I committed a murder. And then he starts talking about his own murder. He's like, whoa, okay. I wasn't expecting that change of direction, yeah. but it came with a reference to another story. And uh, I think there was another point too, where he did another swerve and it was after mentioning another plot point in a different mystery. So I, I liked the way he kind of careened a bit back and forth based on references to books and the way they tied it in like that i mean i thought it was clever in that you know when he confesses he has maybe more to do with these murders than he first thought you you see him differently but then as he kind of explains himself you're kind of like you kind of go along with oh okay i think that makes sense and but you know i don't know i think i'm just fed up with unreliable narrators at this point you know like like it was was, i was like come on you know i don't know (laughs) That was it too. He was he was talking about uh, Gondrel and um, how it had started a real trend in unreliable narrators, and that's when he switched to oh, by the way, I committed a murder. Mm. Yeah, and of course we find out later actually committed more than one. That that's another. I think this was maybe another mystery trope too. Is that murders in murder mysteries are treated rather lightly which I think you kind of have to to read books about people killing each other uh, for enjoyment. In Murder Mysteries, I'm thinking of Agatha Christie, where it was very common for a character to be upset at another character and said, I will kill you, you know? And it's not been my experience that people talk that way a lot. Maybe I just run in different crowds. But in Murder Mysteries, like threats to kill are relatively common, and they're carried out fairly frequently, since it's the whole basis of the genre and that felt like that in this book too like you know he decided oh i was uh, this person was involved in the death of my wife so i'm gonna murder them and then just go forward and do that even at the end where he's confronted with the the murderer and he he shoots him i don't know it seems so forthright and easy for characters in books to do this and it to me as a human being who's seen violent situations and things i just don't think it's that easy for most people to do it but maybe I'm sheltered. Hmm. You know, we've referenced the murder of Roger Ackroyd a few times, and it, although that wasn't on the, the list of the eight perfect murders, the book is kind of structured in the same way. It made me think of a time uh, when I was working at Outreach with Chris Laurie, and, you know, he's telling stories, and he's, he remembered a time when his mom recommended the murder of Roger Ackroyd, and when she gave it to him, she, she said, you'll never guess who the murderer was. And so then he just read it, and he's like, well, who's the most unlikely? And, and he was right. He figured it out because, you know, he, uh, he was told to it. So, I mean, sometimes when you know a twist is coming, it takes something away from it, too. Well, there's a question, though. Since we know we knew going into it that this was going to be a book that referenced a lot of mystery novel tropes, did you have any idea? Were you surprised? by the murder or did you guess no i the first time through i was surprised i didn't i didn't picture it i thought maybe it was his partner in the bookstore especially because when he was texting and he was getting the wrong kind of things in the text oh it's because he's got a broken arm and stuff so i kind of thought that it was that so yeah no it was i didn't i didn't see it yeah yeah i mean i was surprised too and considering there's not a lot of potential suspects Mm. um i mean marty just seems like such a throwaway character like he's really doesn't seem to matter much as you're going through so yeah i didn't get it either what i actually liked to like did you 
No, no. And I was thinking about it afterwards. Like this book is full of red herrings. Like he throws shade. So you start to suspect almost everyone. Like, you know, the Emily, the shop assistant at one point, well, well, she's really private and reserved. Maybe she's the one because she's very observant. It's like, no, no, she's just quiet. She's keeps her life private and she, you know, her relationships and stuff doesn't want to talk about. Okay. That's why she's so quiet. And this person, no, this is why they're behaving that way. And with Marty, He's introduced as, oh, I've got a friend. He's an ex-cop. Maybe I can get a little information, which kind of makes sense, right? And then the cop is a little too inquisitive. And so you, so he kind of seemed like a character who maybe, oh, you got to stay away from him so that he doesn't figure out your involvement in all this. So he's misdirected entirely differently as a character you don't suspect because he might have the ability to solve the crime. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a brilliant little misdirect right there. Yeah, and the way he was characterized, he was almost like the comic relief. Like he was talking about how you know he's uh, he talking about how how his his shower was, or like all these goofy yeah. little things soap. And, in the soap and soap, everything. Yeah. And, and you're like, oh yeah, he's just kind of like this goofy pal that's going to show up every once in a while. But yeah, it turns out no. Yeah, it's like when you're watching a movie and Randy Quaid is a character, and it turns out he's actually really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I kind of pictured yeah Marty is kind of a, a, a Randy Quaid esque uh, kind of character. He would play a while in the movie. Yeah. So I, I, I did think the misdirections were really well done in this one. Yeah. Even like with um, Gwen, the FBI agent, you know, he was kind of thinking, oh, this hotel is more than what an FBI would, uh, agent would be able to pay. And all these little things about, uh, you know, I, I was suspicious of her right from the get go. Like, was she even mm-hmm. an FBI agent? Yeah. And, and so, I had the same question. Yeah. 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 And then turned out she was, but then there were other things with her too. So. Did either of you notice the problematic language towards women in this book? I did not specifically. No. Um, well, speaking of Agent Gwen Mulvey, um, at one point she's referred to as young and inexperienced, uh, bird-like. At one point he notes that her hands are correctly positioned on the steering wheel because, you know, she's a woman. She might not be that good of a driver. He thinks she might be into him. Mm-hmm. About another character, he says he describes her as uh, as though she recently gained weight. And I just found Claire kind of a, a sexy cry for help. So I was I was bugged by all of those things. Mm-hmm. Minor point, not directly related to that, but 10 and 2 is no longer considered the correct steering wheel position. It was when I was in driver's ed, but now it's 9 and 3. I think it was 9 and 3 for me. Yeah. It wasn't when I was, but apparently that is overall safer. But no, I didn't notice those things specifically. I think I was too involved trying to figure out the clues. Yeah, and like, um, what's her name? Tess? Tess, who was, you know, she was also like obviously very written, very one-dimensionally as sort of this person that just, again, wanted to get with Mel and stuff. I'm like, come on. You know, and those are very good observations that I don't think I, I don't think I picked up on, you know, when I was reading through it. I, I would say the characterization was weak. And that's, again, maybe a trope of the genre. And a lot of mysteries, the characters are vehicles for the puzzle. And so they don't have the same depth as you would have, like in the Carol Shields novel we just read, uh, for example. There's nowhere near that level of depth or intricacy to any of the characters. If they have one or two defining features, that's pretty much it. You know, like his shop people one was quiet and introspective and the other was very gregarious and they got along and that was it 
the uh, FBI character. She drove correctly and um, maybe was into him, according to him, but there wasn't that much. Or I guess she was inspired a bit by his blog post at some point. There was some way that she was, uh, or she liked... Her father was the was teacher. Was Clifton, yeah. Right. The Claire's who, who molester. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was the tie-in for that. But again, it all felt a little too convenient. Yeah, there were a lot of interconnections like that, which are also like really long shot things in real life, but turn up more frequently in a in a mystery. The lack of characterization, and not for every mystery, obviously, but for a lot of mysteries, that is not unusual. I, I'm going to make a statement here, which almost makes it sound like I don't like mysteries, but one of the things I, I like about the mystery genre is that they're, they're never great works of art, typically. They are vehicles for distraction and entertainment. Like one of the questions we had is like, what's, what's your favorite mystery? And I thought about that. I can't really pick one because to me, they are a little bit interchangeable. It's more like I like authors and series, like the characters and the environments that they're in. But if I've read a good mystery, it just means, you know, I was, I was happy with the experience. I don't have favorites. I just enjoy the genre for its trappings and in a sense, this book was kind of the same. It's like, I enjoyed it as a mystery, but it's not going to be in my list of favorite books of all time just because it's it's, it's just another mystery. But I, I don't mean that to be dismissive. I enjoy mysteries. It's just that there's, I don't know, it, it's hard to really hold anyone up as like a really, really good mystery. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 see, I see what you're saying. And yeah, to, they feel like to me, and I like mysteries, but they're they're disposable. I, I very rarely will reread them. I reread this one for the podcast, but for myself, I, I like a lot of the police procedural type mysteries, which aren't even really mysteries. It's just like as if you're in the backseat of a police car and following the police around solving the crime. And there might be one or two twists, but an author who I really like who does it well is Michael Connolly. And you, you know my my weird fetish with Google Street View, and uh, Michael Connolly will like use real places and real routes, and so I'll actually look them up and like second guess. I'm like, oh, why does Harry Bosch take this highway? He should have taken this one. Like, <laughs> like I mean, I I I, I'm, I know I'm probably not reading it the way it was meant to be read, but uh, the the puzzle is the fun thing, and see if you can figure it out before the characters do. Have you ever read Ellery Queen? Mm-hmm. Ellery Queen was two men who were writing together as Ellery Queen, and they uh, were contemporary to Agatha Christie, pretty much, but American instead of British. And in the early novels, there was always a point in the novel where there was a break, a specific call out to the reader where the authors say to you, okay, that's all the clues you need to solve this mystery. Do you know who did it? Think about this and this and this. And then it goes on to the end part where the detective reveals everything. But they, they just flat out told you, okay, we've given you all the clues we're going to give you. Now tell us if you got it. There was a TV version of Ellery Queen in, I think, the 70s. I saw it on A&E in like the late 80s. Uh, but they did that same thing, too. There would be a spot in the show where the character Ellery Queen would turn to the camera and say, do you know who did it? Did you figure it out? So that was like, you know, it's just a fun puzzle aspect of it. It's a game you play where you try to figure out who did it. Leading, of course, to the genre's nickname, whodunits. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, too. Like, you want the books to play fair with the reader. And if the ending doesn't 
sort of justify the journey, then you almost feel cheated a bit. But if there are genuinely enough clues in a book to lead you the right way without too many that are taking them off the scent, it's a it's kind of a fine balance. And uh, I don't know if this book achieved that or not. It just seemed to be like one crazy thing after another happening. And then it just like with maybe 50 pages left, it was just like twist after twist after twist. Like the, he finds that professor dead. And then he, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he, he's interviewing one of his former colleagues who may or may not like, like creating this situation that in the reader's mind, okay, this guy does have a history of abuse. And so he could have, and, but then it twists again. And then the last chapter, and I just thought, uh, I don't know. Maybe I've read too many books with unreliable narrators <laughs> recently. The unreliable narrator is hard to pull off well, I think. And it's kind of out of control in terms of uh, tropes these days, I think. It's mm. very popular. We are at the point of where a lot of entertainment is uh, meta-narrative on top of narrative. Mm. Like with horror movies, that's kind of the horror movie I like now is the smart meta-horror movie where they're referencing tropes from previous generations of horror I don't know if I'm ready for that for mysteries. I still like the kind of traditional cozy style. And this, yeah, this was much more meta. And I enjoyed it. But I, uh, you know, I say I don't pick favorite mystery novels, but it also wouldn't be in like my top 10% of mystery novels. It was a good book, but it didn't stand out as much as I thought it might from the, the premise. Yeah, it feels like because it's trying to be an homage to mysteries, it doesn't have enough that kind of distinguishes it on its own merits. It's sort of like, here are all the best parts of mysteries for you mystery lovers. Go and just have a great time and enjoy it. And <laughs> I mean, it has great Goodreads reviews, and I, I think that's why I think mystery lovers just recognize so much of what they like exactly in this book, and it just it pushes all the right buttons. Yeah. yeah. That was enjoyable. And again, I don't want to come off say like I don't like it. I did enjoy it. Just there are better books that are also homages to the mystery genre. But this is fun. It, I found it fun. I was going to say, too, if you're going to murder somebody, maybe you shouldn't adopt their cat afterwards. <laughs> that was a weird, weird <laughs> one, right? And the fact that the FBI agent had noticed it. I want to know what the cat's original name was. Cats have no original mm. names. They are their own beings, and they do not need a name. Mm. Wise. Well, that's just what I get from my cat. I can I call her all sorts of different things, and she doesn't care as long as she gets her food and she gets her pets. <laughs> Any other comments about the book before we move on to our next segment? In that case, we will move on to our segment, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? Who's got something fun? Well, I, I don't know if this is fun, but I didn't have to go very far to pick my pick this uh, month because I just went right to Mal's list and I picked one of the books off of that. So my pick is The Secret History. No. Of- what? Did you do that too? <laughs> yeah. No. You can each say why you picked it. <laughs> All right. Okay. This is going to be very interesting because I picked it, but I don't... <sighs> okay. Let me just... I'll say what I'm going to say. Okay. And then you can say what you're going to say. Okay. And then we can see if... Who has the better reason for wanting? <laughs> yeah. All right. I was going to say, The Secret History of Donna Tart. Uh, if Donna Tart's name is familiar to you, it's probably because you've heard of The Goldfinch, which was her Pulitzer Prize winning novel from 2013. But my pick for this month is her first novel, A Secret History. And it was also referenced in A Perfect Murders as the murder in it. The idea would be that let the, the victim choose 
his or her own way of dying. So like follow their patterns and then just make it look like an accident. In this case, it was somebody that was hiking and then they pushed him off a cliff. So I was going to say the setting is a fictional college in Vermont. So it reminded me of sort of a John Irving or even kind of a dead poet society feel. The narrator, Richard, is looking back on a year he spent at the college and the tight-knit group of students he meets studying classics with kind of a reclusive, charismatic professor. But here's the thing. In the first few pages of the book, we learn that one of the circle of friends was murdered, and we even know the who and the how. So the only bit of the mystery that's left for the reader to discover is the why. So it's not really your typical murder mystery, but I found that Tart creates a wonderfully creepy atmosphere And some of the scenes are so well-written, you feel like you are in the room with the characters. But it sounds like I'm recommending this book. But here's the other side of it. It's a long book. It's almost 700 pages. Hmm. And so even though the murder is alluded to in the first few, you don't actually get to it in the narrative until roughly halfway through. (laughs) Again, by this point, I was pretty fed up with these characters. And I didn't really like any of them. And uh, the second half of the book is all about like the aftermath of the murder and, you know, will they get caught? How they can, how can they cover it up and this kind of thing? I found it all a bit much. And so uh, shortly into the second half, I I stopped reading it and I just went and found a really good summary online and and read that. And then I went back and read about the last 15 pages. So, yeah, so, so I, I feel like I'm recommending it for the mood, but it could have been a lot shorter. So. That's my pick. What's your pick, Toby? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny you should ask. I also chose The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which is the only book on Malcolm's list that I have read. I read the whole thing. (laughs) Um, I really enjoyed it. Donna Tartt is definitely, um, she's not a succinct writer. The Goldfinch is like 900 pages or something. It has been a really long time since I read this book, so I went and I looked up some reviews, and someone described it as fitting into a genre of wealthy students at elite colleges exploring sex and murder through classic literature, (laughs) which I thought was a pretty good uh, summation. You didn't mention that Eight Perfect Murders does spoil the secret history. It does give you the why of why these characters killed their classmate, so if that might be a problem for people. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I do like the sort of atmospheric, dark academia vibes of the secret history. But yeah, I think I think you covered it all. I mean, it is it is a long book, but I I enjoyed all of it. And in contrast to Eight Perfect Murders, how we were talking about how shallow the characterizations are, the opposite's true. I feel like you really yeah. Yeah, get to know these characters and, and their motivations, and there are quite a few twists and turns, too, in it. I, yeah. Even though you kind of know the structure, there are still surprises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as far as those spoilers go, I mean, I don't know if other people may not have this benefit, but I have a poor memory, so I don't remember what they motivation was so i could read that right now and i wouldn't feel spoiled at all <laughs> although as you start reading it maybe you'll be maybe some things would go well, off i have a bad enough memory sometimes years later i will read a book or watch a movie and about halfway through i'll realize i have seen it mm-hmm. or read it and uh, that's a little frustrating but clearly my tastes were correct in choosing it because i enjoyed it the first time so i mentioned it's hard for me to recommend mystery books and sometimes even authors or series because it's it's the genre, it's the form that I enjoy with mysteries. Uh, so I'm going to cheat and instead recommend a movie, uh, specifically Knives Out, the 2019 film starring Daniel Craig, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Christopher Plummer. 
When renowned crime novelist Harlan Thromby is found dead at his estate just after his 85th birthday, the inquisitive and debonair detective Benoit Blanc is mysteriously enlisted to investigate. From Harlan's dysfunctional family to his devoted staff, Blanc sifts through a web of red herrings and self-serving lies to uncover the truth behind Harlan's untimely death. I'd heard this movie hyped up a fair bit before I saw it, but it still managed to exceed my expectations. There's clearly a lot of Agatha Christie's influence in the story, but I also got some Columbo vibes, which I enjoyed. It's fun, it keeps you guessing, and it has a satisfying conclusion, which is everything a good mystery needs. Uh, we have it in the DVD and Blu-ray in the collection. You can sometimes find it on streaming services as well. And I think if you want a real homage to the mystery genre, I think this was it. Like, it it covered all of the bases of a traditional mystery and did it in beautiful style with great acting, and it was just a lot of fun. Christopher Plummer's last role, too, I think. Was it? I think so. Oh, wow. Yeah. He, they actually killed him for real. Yeah. <laughs> That's devotion to the role. <laughs> He was great. I mean, they were they were all. It was such a great. Yeah, yeah group. I'll co-sign. I'll co-sign that yeah, recommendation. It was, it was excellent. I think it was probably one of the last movies I saw in the theater before COVID hit, too. So I have a fond memory of that. Well, now it's time for everyone's favorite segment: nerd words for word nerds. We're in our panelists talk about a word or phrase that's been on our minds. Okay, well, I'll go first. I'm scared. <laughs> um, although it's very unlikely that we have the same word or words here. So I am still reading Don Quixote, and I won't let anyone forget about it until I'm done. And that book is full of great words. So I've just pulled out some words from Don Quixote that have um, piqued my interest as of late. So one is chiaroscuro, which is the treatment of light and shade in drawing and painting. Um, if you've ever seen Girl with a Pearl Earring by Vermeer, that's a good example of chiaroscuro in art. Another great word, pusillanimity pusillanimity, um, which means a lack of courage or determination. Veridical, which is means basically truthful. I, I liked the definition of this one, though, that said coinciding with reality, <laughs> which is also truthful. And then eructation, which is just a fancy word for a burp. Oh. Yeah. That's one that would come in handy for our uh, pre-show preparation. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. something that Sancho Panza does quite often. Um, so there you go. Some That's great. Words from Don Quixote. 200 pages left. <laughs> Ooh, making yeah. good progress. Yeah. Well, uh, my my word or, or phrase is something that we've talked about quite a bit on the uh, podcast today. It is red herring. So in the literary sense, it's a false clue purposely laid in the path of the protagonist and by extension the reader that's meant to distract from the real clues. And like most idioms, the origin is murky. There's a conventional origin says that it comes from the idea of training hounds to stay on the scent during a hunt. So a red herring, which is actually not a real species, it's a kipper that's been cured in brine and heavily smoked, so it has a nice red hue, and it's awfully stinky. So what they do is, well, in the, depending on what version you go with, either the red herring is used to train the hound to follow the scent so he doesn't get distracted from other things during the hunt, but that doesn't really jive with the literary sense. And so the, the other idea is that, well, uh, once you get used to the smell of the red herring, then you also introduce the smell of uh, a fox or a badger, which is typically not as strong as the smelly red herring. And then you, you dr drag the red herring kind of perpendicular across the hound's 
path to see whether the hound is trained well enough to keep with the fox or the badger or or will the hound go off uh, after the red herring. Now, that would be really great if that was all true, but turns out there's some question whether this is the origin of the term because an even older reference has them talking about training horses. And I mean, I don't know. Do horses follow scents? I mean, I don't, I don't, but apparently for the fox hunt, they would train a horse to follow the smell of a red herring so it wouldn't get distracted with everything else that was going on. But that doesn't really, you know, make sense. So I'm just gonna, I mean, it's like, you know, just, you know, we can all make up our own minds what it means. I think for in the literary sense, I just like the idea that it's, uh, gets you off the scent, not on the scent. I feel like I've complicated things. I'm going to complicate it further because that was my word as well. No! <laughs> I don't know how we managed to do that this month, but here what we go. What is wrong with I us? I had thought about red herring, honestly, as... as I guess it was too obvious. That. Yeah, yeah. perhaps it is. But um, I, I guess we looked at different, some different sources, too, because when I was reading about it, there was an article on Gizmodo called The Origin of Red Herring Was a Red Herring. Because the story is, as you said, that the traditional description of a red herring was that it was used to train dogs to follow a trail. But one source, anyway, seemed to indicate that it wasn't to train the dogs to follow the scent because the dogs could figure out a red herring versus an, another thing. But it was used, the dogs would follow the red herring scent and the horses would be going along with the dogs. And it was so that the horses would learn not to get freaked out when the dogs are barking and chasing something so that during an actual fox hunt, the horses would be okay with all of the noise and chaos going on. Oh, and a side note, they only used red herrings when they couldn't get their preferred source of scent, which was a dead cat, which, you know, I hope that they didn't have a lot of dead cats, but yeah, I guess that was more common then. Anyway, the reason it became a saying was in 1803, a journalist named William Cobbett told a story about how in his youth they used red herrings to draw dogs away from a hunt uh, by smearing it across the, the scent trail. And he claimed that the journalists of his time were as easily duped by a red herring as the dogs were. So that became a literary saying as a result of his rant about journalists of the day. Oh. <laughs> And apparently none of us were distracted by the red herring. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss The Girl Who Was Convinced Beyond All Reason That She Could Fly by Sybil Lamb. In a rusted, unnamed city full of $5 hotels and flea markets, a young homeless girl named Eggs is trying to make her way in the world. She's shy and bold at the same time and wary of strangers, but she's convinced beyond all reason she can fly. And fly she does from rooftop to rooftop, from chimneys to phone wires. She scurries to the sides of buildings and sneaks into secret lairs. Eggs is a loner, but she makes two friends. Her friends try their best to protect her, but Eggs meets her matched when on a cold night she swoops on a rooftop and steals a warm jacket belonging to Robin, a neighborhood baddie with anger management issues. Can Eggs elude his wrathful revenge? Beguiling and otherworldly, the girl who was convinced beyond all reason that she could fly is a fevered dream about a young girl's flights of fancy in order to survive and thrive. Speaking of next month's episode, you know how we sometimes have a special guest join us to talk about the book? We're doing it again. Author Casey Plett will be joining us via the magic of the internet to enliven and inform our discussion. Have comments, book suggestions, or great recipes for West African peanut soup? Send us an email. 
You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all of our past episodes there too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. Or do we do a check-in? Dang it, I (laughs) forgot to put that in. Um, Before we dive into the book, let's check in with the panel. Yeah, I have nothing. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I got a big fat zero, too. Okay, so let's pretend we didn't do that. (laughs) Oh, wait, can, do we want to discuss the results of the poll? 